time is now six o'clock on the dot and welcome to WORT's local news for Thursday, February 8th. I'm your host, Marcus Slade. And I'm your host, Sean Bull. In tonight's news, the city of Fitchburg is looking to construct a new police facility, but some residents are pushing back against the project. District 13's encumbered supervisor says he still has work to do on the Dane County Board. And in the second half, a conversation about life post-incarceration, the perils of shopping for power tools, and a closer look at college students' crafts. This is Marcus Slayton and Sean Bull with your local news coming to you from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in rainy downtown Madison. And here are tonight's headlines. The first tornado in history to strike Wisconsin in February is south of Madison by is being reported south of Madison by the National Weather Service. The Weather Service describes the tornado as large and extremely dangerous. Storm reports from the agency indicate that a funnel cloud produced debris at the tree line near Footville in Rock County. Other funnel cloud sightings have been reported near Albany and Judah in Greene County and at Evansville in Rock County. A tornado warning for parts of Dane, Greene, Jefferson, and Rock counties remains in effect until 6.30 p.m. Until now, Wisconsin has never recorded a tornado during the month of February since meteorologists began keeping complete records in 1950, according to Weather Service data. It was the only month with zero reported tornadoes. We'll keep you updated throughout the show tonight. And in other non-weather-related news, Republicans pressed the state Supreme Court today to ignore an independent finding that withdrawn, redrawn legislative district maps the party has submitted are unconstitutional. Meanwhile, GOP lawmakers are talking about voting to enact maps Governor Tony Evers has proposed. The Associated Press reports last week, Evers vetoed maps that were based on his proposal, but that legislators had altered to protect incumbents. The Supreme Court hired two independent consultants to review map proposals submitted by Republicans, Democrats, and Evers. The consultants were authorized to recommend or revise any proposed maps or draw their own. A map must be in place by March 15th to meet filing deadlines for the fall election. A state program to give relief to homeowners facing financial hardship related to the COVID-19 pandemic will stop taking applications on March 8th, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. The Wisconsin Help for Homeowners program, funded under the Federal American Rescue Plan, has provided about $70 million statewide to help homeowners who have fallen behind on mortgage, utility, and tax payments. Recipient households were granted an average of $8,438 in aid, the State Department of Administration reports. Petroleum pipeline operator Enbridge has asked a federal appeals court to block a lower court's order to shut down a pipeline that runs through a tribal reservation in northern Wisconsin, Channel 3000 reports. The company argues that federal judge William Conley's order to shut down the pipeline segment running through the Bad River Chippewa Reservation within three years is a violation of an international compact. Enbridge attorney Alice Lockgran told the court that a 1977 treaty between the United States and Canada prohibits any authority from impeding the flow of gas and oil through pipelines that connect the two nations. In addition to the pipeline shutdown, Connolly also directed the company to pay the Bad River Band millions of dollars in trespassing fees. 
A rise in the number of deaths in Wisconsin prisons may be the subject of an independent investigation, Governor Tony Evers says. Internal probes into the deaths of three inmates at Wapun Correctional Institution are underway. Evers said Wednesday during an event at Darlington Elementary School, an independent investigation is possible if the state deems it necessary. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that Wapun has been the source of complaints of mistreatment and of keeping inmates locked down in their cells for months without access to showers or visitors. A similar lockdown has been seen in place at Green Bay Correctional Institution, another maximum security prison in the state. Meanwhile, in other incarcerated news, the Milwaukee County Jail will be the target of an independent audit after six people died there within 14 months, Wisconsin Public Radio reports. A search for an independent auditor reviewed authorization from the county board on February 1st. In the 14th months ending last August, six people died while in custody at the jail, either from natural causes or by suicide. Last year, 27 inmates barricaded themselves inside the jail library to protest conditions in the, in, at the institution. UW-Madison Chancellor Jennifer Mnookin announced several initiatives today in her annual address to the UW Board of Regents. Chancellor Mnookin told the Regents that her priorities for the coming year represented a, quote, quantum leap forward, unquote, to serve Wisconsin and the world. Chief among those initiatives is a plan to hire researchers to study the effects of artificial intelligence. The campus will hire dozens of new faculty to apply AI across all areas of research. Up to 50 faculty could be hired under the initiative, called Wisconsin Rise, under the next three to five years. Last year, the flagship campus celebrated its 175th anniversary. UW-Madison was founded in 1848, the same year that the safety pin was invented, and two decades before the modern periodic table was made. Chancellor Mnookin also announced an initiative focused on environmental sustainability. That initiative outlines a goal to have 100% renewable electricity on the UW campus by 2030, be a zero waste campus by 2040, and achieve net zero emissions by 2048 or sooner. The goals will be facilitated by a new sustainability research hub. Manukin says the sustainability plan will reduce the environmental impact on UW-Madison, cultivate a culture of sustainability, build climate resilience, and inspire innovation. An effort to compost and expand food scraps in Dane County is getting an injection of cash from the federal government. Dane County is getting $400,000 from the U.S. Department of Agriculture to expand community drop-off sites for food waste. You might have seen some of those collection sites this summer at your farmer's market. The cash infusion comes as the county has been working to expand composting services elsewhere. In January, Dane County announced that it would partner with Purple Cow Organics to expand food and yard waste composting services over the next five years. That program is set to launch in late 2024 and be fully up and running in 2025. Under the partnership, Dane County would be able to compost up to 22,000 tons of leaf, brush, and yard waste, and 1.2 million pounds of food waste per year. Those were the headlines. Now on to the rest of today's top stories. Fitchburg city officials want to construct a new police facility. They say there's not enough space to continue to house police in Fitchburg City Hall. Some Fitchburg residents, though, are voicing concerns. They say there are better ways for Fitchburg to use the roughly $50 million. 
Supporters and detractors clashed at a community meeting earlier this week, and another meeting was scheduled for tonight at 6.30. WORT producer Faye Parks headed out to Doxa Church on Tuesday for this report. I drove into Doxa Church's parking lot after dark. You can find the massive facility by following several winding roads past a shopping center on Rimrock. When I walked inside, I found an open space with a climbing wall and a basketball hoop. Organizers had set up a few dozen chairs in front of a screen. I was one of the first attendees to arrive, but about 30 people filtered in before the start of the presentation. We would be there for another two and a half hours. The city of Fitchburg is steadily moving forward with its plans to construct a standalone police facility across the street from City Hall. The new police services facility is now projected to cost between 40 to $50 million. Tuesday's meeting was the latest in a years-long planning process, and a decade after the facility was first recommended in a 2014 assessment of Fitchburg's city departments. In December, the Fitchburg City Council delayed their vote after the first construction bid came in almost $15 million over budget. The lowest cost and smaller version of the facility would ring in around $40 million, and a larger training facility with sustainability features would ring in at just upwards of $49 million. In January, the city held four public information meetings at public spaces across Fitchburg, and according to Fitchburg Police Lieutenant Ned Hartwick, Tuesday's presentation was intended to answer common questions from previous forums. For nearly two hours inside Doxa Church, about 30 members of the public quietly listened as the presenters outlined the need for a new police facility. But when they opened up the floor for questions, the room became tense and the meeting ran into overtime. Right now, the Fitchburg Police Department shares space with most of the city's government staff, occupying almost two full floors of City Hall. Chad Brecklin, Fitchburg's city administrator, says that City Hall can no longer sufficiently meet the police department's needs. The current City Hall is at capacity, and in fact, some areas have been over capacity uh, for some time. And according to Lieutenant Hartwick, the police department is currently understaffed. He says, in order to serve the city's projected population growth, the number of sworn officers would need to almost double over the next two decades. So not only do we need space now, we need space for the future. And uh, we are, have been the fastest growing city, and we anticipate that growth is going to continue. Hartwick cited a nearly 10-year-old study from a consultant that found there's a lack of space in Fitchburg City Hall. That 2014 study also found that the Fitchburg Police Department has inadequate evidence storage, a lack of indoor parking for police vehicles during inclement weather, and a shared ventilation system. Items that we take in as evidence, primarily narcotics, those drugs can be smelled throughout the entire building. Uh, all the way up to the third floor, uh, if you come in for a common council meeting after a large drug seizure, um, that, that stuff is circulating around the building. That's not ideal for anyone's health or wellness. One community member would later clarify Hartwick's definition of narcotics, asking if he was referring to the smell of marijuana. He responded yes. Right now, Fitchburg police also don't have a designated training site. They say in order for sworn officers to complete required certification each year, they have to use Madison's or Dane County's facilities. Ultimately, when we're going to either one of these locations, it's an inefficient use of time and resources. Outside agencies, Madison and the Sheriff's Office are under no obligation. There is no agreement to allow other agencies in Dane County to use those spaces. 
Two years ago, the city started appropriating funds for the police facility and have since amassed about $35 million. With those capital funds set aside, the city can spend. Three months ago in December, the first construction bid estimated that the project would cost almost $15 million more than the existing appropriated funds. According to Lieutenant Hartwick, the bid is higher than projected because of inflation, the addition of furnishing costs, and the addition of the $4 million training facility, which was not factored into the initial budget. The Common Council was scheduled to vote on that preliminary design in early January, but they postponed their decision in order to host a series of public information meetings. That's because, according to Fitchburg Alder Gabriella Gerhardt, the Council would be missing a step in such an expensive project if they did not properly communicate with the public, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. On Tuesday, speakers answered many pointed questions, namely about the project's cost, its location next to an environmental corridor and across the street from the city's public library, and the fact that the facility was not put to a public referendum. One Fitchburg resident pointed out that, in 2008, asked the public if they supported and were willing to fund a library. But according to Brecklin, the city administrator, that referendum did not yield helpful feedback. Another resident argued that the funds would have a greater impact on affordable housing efforts in the city. But Brecklin explained that once borrowed funds are designated for capital projects, they cannot be redirected to ongoing community initiatives. And Fitchburg Alder Jim Wheeler, who also attended Tuesday's meeting, says that the city has limited resources. We are trying to do something with housing, but you gotta remember also, you need an infrastructure to run that. Madison has complete units that run their housing program, their health program, and everything else like that. We, we don't, we have to count on the um, county. Several residents also expressed distrust of law enforcement. They questioned whether the training facility would actually improve officers' engagement with the community. The issues here are not that you don't have a good enough facility. The issues are not that you don't have enough expensive equipment or expensive training. It's an issue of transparency and the fact that the community does not want to work with you. So why are you expecting the community to front the cost? Law enforcement organizations, from the Wisconsin Chief of Police Association to the Dane County Chiefs of Police Association to the U.S. Attorney's Office and the ATF, have signaled support for the project. So have community groups like the Wisconsin Latino Chamber of Commerce, United Way of Dane County, and the NAACP of Dane County. In one letter of support, Dr. Jack Daniels III, president of Madison College, writes that the new police services facility would benefit their students seeking to be certified in public safety. He says with the facility, Madison College students could get easier access to training. For example, students currently receive ballistics training at an outdoor facility in Wanakee, run by the Dane County Sheriff's Office. With the new facility in Fitchburg, students would get easier access to training, and they could do it indoors without facing extreme weather. In another letter of support, Greg Jones, the president of the Dane County chapter of the NAACP, argues that the training center would allow Fitchburg police to more effectively train officers in things like crisis intervention, de-escalation, and implicit bias. He adds that the project would create more space for community engagement and improve the recruitment and retention rates of police officers. Other organizations are pushing back against the project. Madison Advocacy Org, Freedom Inc., has been mobilizing people to oppose the project, which they say amounts to a cop city in Fitchburg. In a statement, 
They say that public funds should be invested in the Black and Southeast Asian community, rather than in preparation for their arrest and destruction. Freedom Inc. has also started a petition against the project. Another public information meeting is scheduled tonight at 6.30 at Leopold Elementary School. The proposal on the facility's design heads to the Fitchburg Common Council next Tuesday. Then, they'll also consider a budget amendment to increase funding for the project. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. The 2024 spring election season is ramping up. In terms of local elections, the big races on the ballots are for Dane County Board of Supervisors. Only two Dane County Board seats have more than two candidates. That means that they are first headed to a spring primary in two weeks on February 20th. This week, we're taking a look at District 13, where three candidates are vying to represent Madison's near west side. The top two finishers from the primary will move on to the spring election on April 2nd. Earlier this week, WRT News producer Faye Parks spoke to incumbent candidate Jay Brower to hear his priorities for District 13. Thank you for joining me, Jay. It's great to be here. So to start, can you tell us a bit about yourself? What is your background and how did you make your way onto the Dane County Board? So I come to the position through my professional work. I work as lead organizer for SEIU Wisconsin, which is a labor union that operates throughout the state here in Dane County and Madison in particular. And in that work, I have an opportunity to work with a broad cross-section of workers um, in healthcare and a couple other industries in Wisconsin. And so I have a chance to see the effect and the importance of public services. I work with people across the income spectrum, but especially people who are at the lower rungs, and they rely in many ways on the high-quality public services that we have here in Dane County. I sought out the position that I currently occupy as the District 13 supervisor to the Dane County Board as a way of bringing the perspective of the workers who I work with to the board to influence priorities and to further the already strong services that we offer in the county through bringing that perspective. So you came into the the role when there was a vacancy after the last supervisor left the position. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And that was fairly recent, I think, like in September? Yeah, that's correct. I understand you haven't been in the position very long, but is there some work that you've started already that you'd like to continue? There is, actually. I just had an opportunity to introduce my first piece of legislation in the form of a resolution. And the resolution urges Dane County contractors and vendors to work with local high road employers. And so the resolution is a recommitment by the board or is a proposed recommitment by the board to a lot of labor practices that we hold close in Dane County, including utilizing contractors and vendors who have health and safety protocols, who pay a living and fair wage, who offer health benefits, who adhere to gender, race, equity standards, and other provisions that are indicative of a high-quality employer who uh, employs people in good jobs. So I would look forward to seeing that through, look forward to finding opportunities to further strengthen those protections for workers in Dane County. 
Also, I've had an opportunity through my service on the Health and Human Needs Standing Committee of the board to work in a few areas that I hope to continue on. The first is in housing. Affordable housing is an incredibly important issue in Dane County. Reading through the reports that have been issued by the regional housing group, there's clearly an affordability gap. It has an outsized impact on communities of color in Madison. And the Health and Human Needs Committee works very closely with Dane County staff on improving the conditions, access to affordable housing, housing affordability. And it's an incredibly technical process from land acquisition to identifying developers to the financing arrangements. And that's some work that I've begun to understand in detail and would carry on that work upon election to the position. In addition, I'd also plan to continue working on food security Security. The Food Council of Dane County issued a report in 2023 on the post-pandemic conditions of the food system, and there were a number of gaps that were identified that call for improvement, including more sustainable practices, connecting BIPOC farmers with food banks and other consumers of produce, and reviewing opportunities to seek out federal funding to close the gaps. We're going to have some important budget gaps to fill with the um, sunsetting of a American Rescue Plan Act funds and food security is one area where we will need to seek out additional opportunities. So both of your opponents are quite young and have stated that it's important to get the youth vote involved in local politics, especially since District 13 includes part of UW-Madison's campus. Do you share that perspective? And if so, how would you work to make that happen? Yeah, I I agree with that perspective. I've spent most of my career in higher education before becoming a labor organizer, including 10 years as a student myself, both at the undergraduate and graduate levels. So I have a particular understanding of the pressures placed on students in the district, especially when it comes to housing, also when it comes to food security, which is an unseen issue in the campus area, but one that is nevertheless very, very present. I've sought out a campaign manager who happens to be a first-year student at UW-Madison, and Logan, my campaign manager, has informed my campaign in important ways. You can't find a much more focused opportunity to include a voice in your campaign than through working with a campaign manager. We talk every day, and that's been important. Also, I have relied on, to my great benefit, current students to aid my campaign through canvassing, other activities uh, like that, in order to shape my message, craft my message, inform my message in a way that is inclusive of the entire district. I know that criminal justice reform is also a big talking point this year. What is your perspective? You know, we've certainly had many conversations on the board in my time. So I would say that the history of the discussion related to criminal justice reform is pretty extensive. And there are a number of important changes that have been approved, but are being delayed by the lack of a director for the Office of Justice Reform. And so I certainly share in a belief that the criminal justice system needs reform. It needs direct attention and unwavering, clear-eyed recognition that there is a disproportionate impact on communities of color, especially the Black community in Madison, that needs specific and direct redress. As the board moves forward to hire someone into that position, one of my criteria will be to look for a candidate who is ready and able to make that acknowledgement 
and propose a set of strategies to address the racial disparities in the criminal justice system. So I think that covers all of my questions, but is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Actually, we are going to have at least one public forum prior to the primary, which will be on February 20th. And we have an upcoming open forum that will, it's being hosted by the Mortgage Center for Public Engagement at UW-Madison, along with Badger Votes and in partnership with the Campus Area Neighborhood Association. And so more details about that will come out soon. And that will be an opportunity to see and hear from the three candidates in a public forum on their respective positions. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Jay. Yeah, it was great to be here. Thank you for the opportunity to speak with your listeners. That was District 13 Supervisor Jay Brower, who represents part of UW-Madison's campus and the city's near west side on the Dane County Board. He says he still has work to do for the county, drawing on his experience as a labor organizer with SEIU Wisconsin. We heard from his opponents, Travis Austin and Ronan Rataj, earlier this week. You can check out our website to hear their goals for District 13. It's now 6.22 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Tax season is here, and if filing your return is causing added stress due to limited resources, a nationwide assistance program is once again available. That includes dozens of sites around the Badger State that are now open. Mike Moen of the Wisconsin News Connection has the story. Many Wisconsinites have received their income documents for filing taxes. A long-standing program geared toward low- to moderate-income adults is back again this year to provide free in-person and virtual assistance in preparing returns. AARP has its tax aid sites open around the state. The organization says 650 volunteers completed more than 23,000 returns for Wisconsin residents last year. AARP's Darren Wozniewski says the program can help people with limited resources avoid overpaying or turning to tax prep services they can't afford. He says the no-cost assistance might make a refund to stretch a little further. Even a modest refund for somebody who's you know, living on Social Security can go a long way to helping alleviate some of the financial stress that they might be under. The volunteers are trained and IRS certified to ensure they're caught up on the latest changes to the tax code. A list of Wisconsin sites or ways to receive help online is available through the AARP website. Wozniewski says the virtual help carried out by volunteers is pretty expansive. They've also been able to knock it down to one-visit scan so that you just come once, give your documents, and then complete everything electronically online after that, going right over to just providing online coaching. As for in-person help, AARP's website lists 120 tax prep sites for Wisconsin this year. Most of them are senior and community centers as well as public libraries. The organization says you don't have to be a member to receive the assistance. This is Mike Moen for Wisconsin News Connection. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. 
A tornado has touched down in Wisconsin, the first time that a tornado has been recorded in February in state history. Our headline writer, Russ Mackey, has been keeping an update on the storm. Preliminary reports of two tornadoes touching down southeast of Madison may have produced significant damage, observers say. Meteorologist Craig Cece reports two tornado tracks through Greene and Rock counties. One meteorologist reports radar-indicated debris from a tornado rising 10,000 feet in the air. Channel 27 cited that the National Weather Service reports a tornado was on the ground near Edgerton at Interstate 3990 at 6 p.m. Also at 6 p.m., the Weather Service reported roof and tree damage near Evansville. The tornado warning was extended in east-central Jefferson County until 7 p.m. Time is now 6.36, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with co-host Sean Bull. Thanks for joining us. In this archival edition of Out of the Box, host D. Star sits down with Dennis Franklin, a navigator with Expo, or Ex-Incarcerated People Organizing. Franklin shares with us his childhood and the important work he does in Madison. What's up, everybody? This is your host, D-Star, here with... Dennis Franklin. Mr. Dennis Franklin. How you feeling? I'm well, and yourself? Eh, I can't complain. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, for the people that don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm a person who is impacted by the system, uh, meaning that formerly incarcerated. I've been in Madison, uh, Wisconsin since 1992. What I do out here in the community is try to help people who are on probation and parole successfully navigate that type of uh, stuff, so, for Expo. So what's your official title? My official title with Expo would have to be Navigator. What a Navigator does is, for me, what I do uh, helps individuals who are formerly incarcerated or currently incarcerated. Uh, Whenever you get out, I'm able to help you navigate probation and parole. If you still have things going on with like court, I'm the person who goes in there with you so I can give it to you in plain language. Right. You know, a lot of people don't understand uh, legalese and a lot of people are not able to navigate the legal system. Right. So having had over 30 years of experience in the legal system, one of the people that can at least give you some type of clarity as to what's going on. And you also do other things. You're kind of a first responder of sorts, correct? Yes. So what that entails, I also do work with focus interruption, commonly referred to as a FIC. What I do with FIC is when uh, someone is like shot or some type of trauma where there's, you know, violence, I respond to the hospital. Sometimes we respond to the actual scene and then I go over to the hospital. And what we do in that situation is... We are the go-between for the family and the police. We are not there for any other purpose than to make sure that the family is okay and that the victim is okay. And if there's a situation where the victim may have passed away, then we afford the family hotel. You know, they feel as though there may be some type of other retaliation. Then we help them with a hotel. We also help with funeral expenses as well. So, but yeah, we are there strictly for the family. Yeah. So I remember that we were speaking and you told me a couple of stories about being on the scene and being at the hospital and things like that. It's, it's really, really heavy. 
So we know that that work is very, very important in the community because a lot of times we get into the courtroom, we don't understand the language. You know, shout out to James Morgan because James Morgan is a really, really big advocate for language. Yes. We don't really know the language. So if they're saying stay sentence or concurrent and consecutive, consecutive. and right, things right, like right. that, it's like, okay, you speak in Chinese, right. you know, it's really important for the, the work that you guys do. So can you tell us a little bit about your personal experiences being an impacted person? It was a long night in 1988. No. <laughs> <laughs> the wind was blowing. Right. <laughs> like I said, I have been having experiences with the carceral system since the 80s. As I got older, I had to realize that a lot of the things that I was taught was lies. Right. And when you instill certain things in young people, even if they're not that from where I come from, there is almost a must that you live up to that. And I'm going to give you an example. My mom and uh, dad have served time in the prison system. And I can remember when my dad went to prison and my older brother had passed away, I was told that I was the man of the house. Now you're the man of the house. So imagine being 10 years old and being told that you're the man of the house. All the responsibility. So you are forced at a 10 year old boy to now put on the a, protector yeah. and provider yes. at 10. It's yes. Like that. That could screw your head up. It, it, it absolutely will because it forced me to put on a mask until my face was able to grow into it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. And I lived that title, not really understanding the significance of how that shaped the way I thought, the way I've acted, my beliefs and everything. Going back a little bit to your other duties as an organizer. Navigator. A navigator, I'm sorry. And being a first responder of sorts. Is there any type of specific situation that stands out to you? When it comes to being a responder, a violence interrupter, what stands out to me a lot is the undealt with trauma. And I say that because in those situations where someone has been uh, shot or stabbed or actually killed, individuals that I have dealt with, it's clear that they have not had the experience of really dealing with trauma. The type of environment that I was raised in, you just pack that stuff. And I said that to say because oftentimes there will be people who are there to help you. And because you do not know how to accept that help, everybody and everything in this situation is suspect. And oftentimes that results in family members acting out in a way that they normally wouldn't if they was able to really just think about the situation. But then again, you have to you have to also uh, look at the fact of who can really think in that type of situation. You know, so but the good part about that is and I don't know good part as if there's even a such thing of that. But the the lining in that is when you have built a relationship with individuals and they know who you are. And when you come there, they know what your heart is and what your intentions are. It's a different situation. I've come across some situations where I've run into people that I know very well. And when they see me, it actually calms the situation down because they know who I am and what my true intentions are. And I think that speaks to the importance of having a relationship with the community like you guys do. Yes. You know, because everybody can't do that job. Absolutely not. So when we're talking about people going on 
to the scene in these types of situations where a lot of the times it's their first experience with something that traumatic. Yes. And to have a guide that you trust, a lot of people don't get that. Right. Right. And I think that that is very, very important. That's very important to uh, see someone who you know uh, what their intentions are. Like I said, we are not there uh, to share information with the police we are not there to scrutinize the situation. We are not there to judge anyone. Has anybody ever lashed out at you? Not me specifically, but there has been situations that has gotten a little testy. How do you guys deal with that? It's a culmination of things. Like I said, me personally, I haven't had to deal with it. But if I were in that situation, I would have to understand. I would have to have understanding. I would have to have compassion and empathy. And I would understand that this situation is being perpetuated by emotions and beliefs. So in that situation, things are reactionary. But you, for me, I go into that situation knowing that that could always be a possibility. Right. And if that uh, were to happen, you have to uh, remove yourself from that situation right. in the sense of I'm not here to fight or upset anyone. Usually, though, when you're in those type of situations, there's someone in the family who you know you can talk to. That was D-Star, host of Out of the Box podcast, talking with Dennis Franklin, a navigator with Expo. That was just a portion of their full conversation, which you can find online wherever you get your podcasts. On this week's edition of The House Always Wins, we'll join tool connoisseurs Allie and John as they discuss the joys and sorrows of buying cordless tools to use around your house. I call it housework, because it's light work. What you, what you done I'm going to throw shakes, filling the base to my feet hurt. Hey! I call it housework. Hello, everyone. I'm John. And I'm Allie, and welcome to The House Always Wins, where you can learn cool stuff about your house. We all love cool stuff, and one of the coolest things that we're going to have fun talking about is that do-it-yourselfers, you get to purchase power tools. Yay. Yay. So the thing about purchasing your first cordless tool, and for a lot of people, that's going to be a drill or an impact driver. Mm -hmm. I, I know it was for me. Same here. Is that what you're really choosing, if anything, is you're choosing the battery platform. These days, each major tool brand sells dozens, even hundreds of tools that all use the same batteries and chargers. And so as you start to purchase additional tools, it's convenient and it's economical to have them all running on the same batteries. The fact is the batteries are the most expensive component of most cordless tools. Oh yeah, and batteries are the linchpin and the biggest pain in the butt of all these tools. Um, I've got some old Panasonic drills and drivers that I've had for years and the drills and the driver are perfectly good. They work great, but the batteries, I have four batteries, they are on their last leg. In time, batteries degrade to the point where they just don't hold the charge anymore. And it actually would cost less for me to go out and buy an entirely brand new drill and driver just to get the batteries than it would be to try and buy just the batteries only because they're so expensive. You can spend hundreds of dollars just for a couple of batteries. Of course, all the manufacturers have unique batteries, so you can't like take a DeWalt battery and put it in a Makita or a Milwaukee or so, you know, you're, you, you, like you said, once you pick one, you are, you're tied in. And so I ended up, I'm slowly converting myself over the Makita. 
because I'm not going to go out and spend hundreds of dollars for the batteries. And unfortunately, I have these perfectly good power tools that eventually I'm going to have to throw away. They'll be in a landfill. They'll be in a landfill. That's what will happen. Yep. yep. I ended up, I stayed away from the Makita and that was my experience with working with the Makita batteries. And I, I assume they've gotten better, but for a while, when we first had some lithium ion Makita tools, the batteries kept dying. And I was mm-hmm. like, well, this, that's not what I want. Yeah. For me, I ended up, I landed at, at going with the Milwaukee platform, which is frankly, one of the expensive ones. It's Mm -hmm. it's certainly more expensive than some of the others. But for me, the real driving things where I'm choosing a tool, ergonomics is hugely important for me. I have small hands. I'm a Mm -hmm. short person. If I can't grip that tool, it's, it's, that's a deal killer right there. Absolutely. So that's probably the first thing. Second thing I look at was battery quality. And and I, at our workplace, we had a lot of Makita. We had a lot of Milwaukee. The Milwaukee's just kept going and going. They were People were dropping them and they just kept chugging along. So I love that for them. All right. And then, you know, sort of one other thing that I, I do sometimes is I do look at tool reviews. Some of the, the fine home building, your your journal of light construction, they'll just review a bunch of different cordless tools of a certain type and you can compare and contrast. Now, at this point, if I look at a tool review and it's like definitely buy the Bosch, I'm not going to buy the Bosch. Sorry, I don't have any Bosch batteries. Yeah. You'd have I, to get a whole new platform. Yeah. So sometimes that can be a little, a little frustrating because, for example, I'm not in love with the Milwaukee cordless saws. Mm-hmm. I prefer the Makitas yeah. for that. But I'm not really ready to jump battery platforms. Jump battery platforms. Yeah, and back in the day when everything was corded, you could have a Makita this, a Milwaukee that, a Bosch this, a yeah, you know, Hitachi that, and they were all corded and it didn't matter. In fact, various brand names make better and worse tools of various things. And you're right, that their circular saw Makitas is the best one out there. But, you know, those Milwaukee tools are some of the best when it comes to the batteries. Uh, we should take a quick moment and just kind of talk about what does all the nomenclature mean, right? So when you go to buy these things, you're going to see 12 volts, you're going to see 18 volts, you're going to see... T- what does it all mean? At this point, I think most everything that's professional grade or decent is 18 volt, right? Isn't that? Yeah. And I think with DeWalt uses a 20 volt platform, which is similar. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and those two extra volts really don't make a difference. So probably not. It's like, oh, this one goes to 11. Uh, there's a lot of 12 volt stuff out there. I would say that's probably more like homeowner grade tools. They're just mm-hmm. not going to they're not going to hold the charge as long. Yep. They're not, not going to have, they're long. not going to have as much, much kick on them. Probably those tools aren't. The, the 18 to 20 volt uh, platform is good. The thing to watch for is amp hours. So mm-hmm. the bigger number in amp hours, the bigger the batteries, but also it means more expensive. So, Hey, this one is a five amp hour. It's great, but it's going to be $250 just for two batteries. Yeah. And well, for- I mean, the other thing about the amp hours is that the more amp hours, the bigger the physical battery is, which means right. it weighs more. Sometimes I just see people, they, they'll put like our 12 amp hour Milwaukee uh, battery into their drill. And I'm oh just my like, God. why are you doing this? Like, it's a who boat wants, anchor. <laughs> who wants to carry around a 15 pound battery? You know? Oh my God. Yeah. It gets kind of huge. And at a certain point, it's like, okay, that's silly. You might as well actually go to something corded because it's actually lighter. But you know, then you got to get Absolutely. A I mean, those batteries exist for running more powerful tools, you know, so- and that does beg the question, which of the tools are probably best off not being cordless, but corded? Like, what, what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, my kind of point of view is that I don't need a, a tool that's basically going to be positioned at the job site in one spot to be a cordless tool. Right. So a miter saw, a table saw. I don't need them to be cordless. I'm not going anywhere with them. I'm going to set them up one time. I'm assuming I'm always working in a place that has electricity. Right. I just know that that is a reliable tool. It will always have electricity and off I go. So yeah, I'm just sort of anything that 
just sits in a place versus being moved from place to place. Yeah. Yeah. And one other thing is I, I, I did recently buy a cordless Sawzall and I waited for a really long time before I did that because... I've just not been very impressed with the power in those cordless sawzalls. Yep. I, I just, it, and I'll be honest with you, when I'm trimming hedges, I use my cordless sawzall. Huh. When I'm actually doing demolition work, I get the corded sawzall out because that tool is made for that job. Like it is up to that job. That cordless sawzall, it's cute and all. It is and very it's, cute. And it's, and quite, it's, it's quite cute. It's convenient. Just exactly. does not do the job. Yeah. They've gotten the circular saws to the point where they have the equal amount of power as a corded tool. Yeah. And some of the other ones, but you're right. The sawzalls, they still haven't quite figured that one out yet, for sure. The cordless circular saws that the last generation are, they're fantastic. Yeah. But I was also very slow in adopting those because I was just like, I do not want a saw that just sounds like this wimpy little thing that's going to spend <laughs> 10 minutes going through a two by four because it's hurting inside. And it's hurting it's, inside. It's, it's like, I don't want to do this. Yeah. So, uh, the other aspect we should touch on real briefly is, so we've been talking about professional grade tools. And if you're a homeowner, you may not necessarily need the Makita in Milwaukee, uh, the Bosch, the Hitachi. In some cases, you know, the Ryobi is, is okay for the typical homeowner. You'll probably pay a, a price point less. DeWalt has a lower brand name. DeWalt is a good professional grade tool, but they have some lesser ones and Makita Milwaukee do too. The only thing I would say, and I think we both agree on this is definitely avoid the master force, uh, the, the brand name tools from some of the, the big box stores, right? Absolutely. Excellent. Well, that's probably all we have time for today when it comes to tool talk. Until the next time, if you have any questions about home improvement, construction, or carpentry you'd like us to answer, feel free to drop us an email at thehousealwayswins at wortfm.org. Kentucky's Berea College has a long history rooted in Southern Appalachian culture. It was the first co-ed integrated college in the South, and students haven't paid a penny of tuition since 1892. Instead, they create craft objects that the college sells to cover costs. Danielle Burke is a PhD student in design studies and history at UW-Madison. Thanks to a fellowship she was awarded in 2015, she spent time studying her craft at Berea. Now she's co-curator of a craft exhibition in the Ruth Davis Design Gallery. She gave future contributor Jennifer Fields a tour in this edition of Radio Chipstone. Coverlet weaving is um, a way to make blankets out of linen or cotton and wool, and they're highly patterned, and we have one in this exhibition. Let's just go take a look. <laughs> because coverlet, you think, I think of a coverlet, I understand it being used traditionally as a blanket, but I also yeah. think of coverlets as small things. Oh, like, you know, like, a, like a little throw blanket like you would have. Okay, yeah. So I've, I've conflated it or yeah, changed yeah, the yeah. meaning of the term. Well, I think it's a term that's like pretty, I think it's a flexible term. Like people use the word coverlet to describe different kinds of blankets. But in the region, they're a pretty specific kind of blanket where it's this overshot pattern. So it's a highly geometric and repeat pattern that happens. They date back to, you know, early settlers in the, in the area. What's the process? Is this woven? Yep, yep. They're woven on a loom. So you have a warp with linen or cotton. It was linen in older days and then cotton more and more recently. And then a supplementary weft. So you have two wefts going and one is that same linen or cotton. 
So that makes it a really strong blanket, those materials. And then the wool is the other supplement, and that's what makes the pattern. So then break down warp and weft. What mm-hmm. do those terms mean? Warp is the set of threads that the loom holds in tension. And then weft is what the weaver moves perpendicular to the warp. Danny, this blanket seems to me like it would take a long time. Was this decorative or was it functional? I can't imagine being cold and waiting for this blanket because it's (laughs) intricate. It's one of the most intricate patterns that I've seen in a textile. Yeah, they were totally functional and really like fantastically functional in the way that like that linen or cotton was so strong and the wool is so warm they lasted for a long time. You would really use them. And in older mountain homes, if you, a lot of them were one-room houses. So if you think about the bed and what was on the bed, in some ways that's sort of a display place in the room or in the, in the household. So having a really decorative but functional blanket kind of made sense to the, you know, the aesthetics of a house at that time. Yeah. One thing I yeah. enjoy about this exhibit, Danny, is that it kind of looks like a old settler home, the way it's laid out. Like we have the brooms, we have the pottery, we have what looks like textiles that be may be used for like personal hygiene. Talk to me about the intention behind this exhibition and the type of research you had to do to pull this off. Yeah, so I'll, I'll say that I, I co-curated the show with folks from Berea. They proposed the show to us initially and what they really wanted to highlight was the student work done at Berea. The craft program at Berea is part of their labor program. It's a work college. So students who are in the craft program are not majoring in craft. Many of them aren't even majoring in art to begin with. They might be nursing majors or environmental science or, you know, communications anywhere from around uh, the college. And what they're doing in the student craft program is um, the college has a, has a labor program where every student works for the college and that covers their tuition. So they graduate without debt. And in the craft side, what they're doing is producing objects that the college sells. So long story short, this exhibition is partially about what is made in the production side in the contemporary moment, which had a big shift in 2018 with how they approached what they made. And then the other two sections in the show is a kind of historical look at the past 130 years of student craft, what they used to produce, which was more heritage objects. And then the final section is the speculative craft, where it's looking at what many people in student craft make of their own sort of creative volition, so outside of the production setting. So those are kind of the three areas of the show and kind of how we approached it was having these three kind of distinct sections and how they all show different components of why student craft at at Berea is so special. So then when we're talking about the student craft at Berea and we're talking about these three different sections, is there an object that has been part of their production since the beginning? Not any more. But there are threads of historical objects that are still being made. So like we were talking about the coverlet, that linen and wool, um, highly decorative, this overshot structure, really like iconic for the region. Rather than make those kinds of blankets, they're now making something like the rise throw, which is this striped blanket. So much faster to produce, but also a little bit more contemporary like aesthetic to it. Um, and it's made of hemp and wool, so there's kind of a there's still kind of a lineage with regional materials happening, but just a little bit of a different flavor. Yeah, 
And it looks like the same can be said for the brooms, too. Like the mm -hmm. brooms here look smaller. Mm -hmm. The handles are more, well, I can't even say the handles are more decorative. But the handles here seem like more traditionally turned handles or woven handles. Yeah. But we've got these actually sculptural handles on the brooms over here. And it looks like the color palette has expanded as well. Yeah, so there's some brooms, like in the production side, there's these forest brooms where it's these raw um, handles from, um, what is it, red maple. So they're gathered from the forest, the Berea College's forest, and left raw, you know, like with their bark still on and all the bends and everything still in there. And then the broom straw is all just kept as its natural, um, or sorry, broom corn, that's what it's called, um, kept at its like undyed natural color. But then another set of brooms that they're doing is really is super colorful, like synthetically dyed, straight handle, and those are about you know senses of time and the passage of time and the different ways that light changes throughout the day. So they're playing with both like a really regional, local kind of um, product, but then also a really contemporary and kind of technological play with like dye stuff and, and broom corn. And I think you can see that in the historical ones too, like what kind of um, aesthetic considerations are happening throughout time and how those, you know, show up in the kind of broom handle that appears. You know, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. So then Danny, how, what is your practice and how has this experience influenced that or has it? Back when I was in 2015, 2016, when I was first learning about Bria College and visiting their archives, I was looking at all of their material as a, as a studio artist and as a weaver who wanted to recreate um, and learn from these historical objects. And then now that I'm a PhD student here and got involved as a co-curator and I went down to research again this past summer, it was less about you know my own response to the kind of objects and more about the larger storytelling potential that each of these objects had historically and contemporarily and um, you know what they mean to the region like what what do objects tell us about the whole region more broadly but also about Bria College uh, specifically you know so it was more of a more of an engagement with the sort of politics at play and the consequences of those politics and less about learning techniques from objects so yeah. yeah. For WORT, I'm Jennifer Fields. That was Danielle Burt on a craft exposition, exposition at the UW-Madison's Ruth Davis Design Gallery. Heart, head, and hand, making and remaking at Berea College Student Craft is open for viewing until March 3rd. And that's a wrap for WORT's live local news at 6. Your contributors were Russ Mackey, D-Star, John Stephanie, and Allie Bereni, and Jennifer Fields. Nicole Alley was your engineer, Faye Parks is your producer, and Ms. Shali Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Sean Bull. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Good night.